Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Nicole Norea, is Vox.com's immigration reporter and wanted to talk about the situation in Afghanistan, which has a lot of aspects. Um, if you want to see me on Twitter.com defending the Biden administration, uh, you are welcome to find me there. Um, I think on the, the kind of big foreign policy issues. But what I wanted to talk about with Nicole is something more specific, which is the situation with, with Afghans who are or might be eligible for different kinds of refugee status in the United States or elsewhere, uh, what has been done to help them, and not just the logistics of the evacuation, but the sort of much larger policy context of getting them, them approvals and the other options there. So, Nicole, welcome. Thanks for having me, Matt. So a phrase that many of us have become familiar with lately is SIV which is related to this. And can you, like, what is that? What is an SIV? Where does that come from? Yeah, so, like, the SIV program was created in 2006. It stands for Special Immigrant Visa. And it was really born out of sort of the combined lobbying efforts of refugee experts, U.S. government employees who worked in Iraq and Afghanistan, and also just American soldiers and Marines. And the program is basically designed to bring over Mostly uh, people who worked as interpreters for the U.S. military, but also others who were directly employed by the U.S. government and get them visas and allow them to eventually become citizens of the U.S. And basically, it's just sort of a means of protecting those people. It makes sense both diplomatically and just from a humanitarian standpoint. I think for a lot of people, when this program was started, it was seen as something that was very personal to these advocates who were working for it. In the sense that, you know, these are people that they had worked side by side with and knew personally. And these were their colleagues who were being issued death threats. And there were, you know, bullets showing up at their doorstep. So it really was a sympathetic group that past administrations sort of were able to zero in on and find these people to be the most worthy of protection. And as I mentioned, it was like something that was implemented for Iraqis as well um, and then later for Afghans. Yeah. And I mean, I, I remember this from the Iraq context. And as you say, I mean, it's a sympathetic group, not the only sympathetic sort of people in Iraq or Afghanistan, but they had a unique relationship with American soldiers and veterans, because when you work side by side with people in the field in stressful, dangerous situations, there's a bond that that creates. And there was a special emphasis 
on the idea that people in that situation needed help. And also pragmatically, right? I mean, we there was an ongoing demand, right, for interpreters and other assistance and so sort of showing that we are able to help people it's i mean it it's not the same as the witness protection program but it has some of the same ideas behind it right if we wanted iraqis to cooperate with us we needed to show that we were able to do things to safeguard them and their families yeah and i guess that was also relevant like beyond just the conflict in iraq you know i think u.s military leaders supported this program because it was a show of faith on their part that, you know, if you work with the U.S. government, we will have your back. But it's also sort of like politically expedient, right? Because you kind of have this finite population that the U.S. can point to in terms of being the most deserving, quote unquote, of U.S. assistance. And I think after Vietnam, you know, U.S. officials had tried to set parameters around just who should be prioritized for evacuations. But in practice, it ended up just being that they airlifted pretty much anyone who wanted to get on a plane. But now, you know, the Biden administration has committed to getting out American citizens, permanent residents, and then these SIVs, but has also kind of made like a looser commitment to getting out other vulnerable Afghans, like a group that's like sort of at this point pretty undefined, but that many people I think are taking to mean, you know, women's rights and LGBTQ activists, um, employees of NGOs and media organizations, et cetera. But yeah, so I think this population, given that there is a finite number of them, about like 88,000, both like the primary applicants and their families, it's sort of easy for the U.S. to be able to point to this population and say, these are who we're going to be able to protect. Right. It's a it's a substantial number of people, but it's also a finite quantity, right, in a way that someone who is alarmed about the Taliban taking over the country is like, that's a very expansive group. But so what is the eligibility exactly for this, right? I mean, immigration policy, visa rules is like full of fussy details. So what what do you need to have done to be eligible for this? Or, or even more to the point, like, what do you need to do to actually get the visa? Because there's a difference between in theory, you could get one and in practice, you get one. Right. So there is kind of like an arduous 14-step application process that involves significant documentation that critically includes a recommendation letter from an applicant's like senior U.S. citizen advisor. So they really do need to have worked directly for the U.S. government. Um, The minimum period is one year, but that recently changed. It was previously two years. But the problem is, is that a lot of Afghans who would otherwise be eligible for the program have had difficulty obtaining that recommendation letter, especially in cases where they were working as contractors, because, you know, they may not have known whoever is the senior U.S. citizen supervisor overseeing a project. And so just even knowing who that person is, is somewhat of a difficulty. But then, you know, even if they can kind of gather those required documents, there's a really lengthy wait time before they're ultimately approved for a visa. Under federal law, they're required to be processed within nine months. But in practice, it's always been longer than that. And the Trump administration actually kind of actively stonewalled the program, meaning that there wasn't a single SAV processed between March 2020 and January 2021. But it's still, even with Biden sort of reprioritizing the program, it's still been taking about two years to process the application. So at this point, you know, for people who are still waiting in Afghanistan, like they can't afford to wait for as long as all of that, you know, vetting will take. And, you know, as part of this, they have to undergo various background checks and security vetting, which, 
you know, some people are saying those things should be waived and they should be allowed to come directly to the U.S. But like, I think there are some obvious political reasons why the Biden administration doesn't necessarily want that to happen at this point. So, I mean, this period is crucial, right? Because if we look at the situation in Afghanistan, there is a there's a calm period in the war for most of 2020 and most of 2021 when Trump has this truce in place with the Taliban, where U.S. troops are scheduled to withdraw. The airport is open in Kabul. And like this would be the the time, the final months of the Trump administration, the first months of the Biden administration, when people would be saying like, oh, shit, I've got to get this paperwork together. But they weren't processing the visas during that time. And Biden, I mean, Trump, not at all. And then Biden, I guess, got it back going. But it wasn't like a it wasn't like a crash program. It wasn't like, OK, we've got four months to, like, get as much of this done as humanly possible. Yeah. And I think that's created a lot of frustration on the part of, like, immigrant advocates and, you know, ex-military groups, because, you know, the administration's been able to process about 5,000 applications since Biden took office. But that was kind of never, like, at that pace, it was never going to be enough. Because given that there are, you know, 88,000 people in the application pipeline, they were never going to be able to process that many people before the August 31st withdrawal deadline. So they kind of were putting their faith in this program as sort of the primary means of being able to get vulnerable Afghans out. But there wasn't really any urgency on the part of the administration. And I think a lot of people had presented on the advocacy side, had presented the administration with a plan to get them out more quickly. But and this this was months ago, you know, in April, May. But I think ultimately what happened was that the, maybe the Biden administration thought that the Afghan army would be able to buy them some extra time so that they continue processing these visas after the withdrawal deadline. But maybe even that seems like a kind of charitable reading of the situation. I mean, even if you do the math on it, right? I mean, it would be 13 years, it sounds like, to clear that backlog, right? I mean, that's not... I, I, I mean, I, I think it does seem like the Biden administration thought the Afghan military would hold out for longer than it did. But the amount of... Like, the, the timelines don't add up there, right? I mean, even under a much more optimistic assessment, they were they were never going to get through this backlog without some policy change. Yeah, I mean, I think I have to wonder whether we would have seen this level of prioritization of getting these people out if there weren't these horrific images from the first day of evacuations at the airport and this kind of like mass public outcry largely on the part of the media, which, you know, I, I know you've spoken about your opinions on that. But yeah, I just I, I do wonder to what extent they were ever really planning to get the vast majority of those 88,000 people out. And, you know, I, I do wonder to what extent I, I think that the probably the success of this operation will ultimately be measured in the fact that, um, you know, in the number of American lives lost, which at this, at this point is zero. But and of course, that's impressive and should be commended. But, you know, I think it's just a lot more difficult to assess what the cost might be to this group of vulnerable Afghans and even people who aren't eligible for the SIV program. So it's just sort of interesting to me, you know, is it this outcry that caused this prioritization? Well, and I think, I mean, what what, what I think you know, I hope people understand from this is the distinction between the logistics of the evacuation of the eligible people versus how has the population been defined, right? And they they set the bar low, right? I mean, first Trump, 
and then Biden taking over created a smaller population of evacuees than you would have had if you had done this. And then it seems to me they're doing a pretty good job of evacuating the people who they're evacuating, right? But there's this much larger group who sort of morally fit the criteria, but are not actually going to be able to get the visas under this circumstance. And no provision has been made for them, really. Although, you know, with a few days left, I guess, theoretically, it could be. Yeah, I mean, there are ways that the Biden administration has tried to open up pathways for people to come to the U.S. as refugees. But I think those are relatively inviolable compared to this program, just because it will require people to get out of the country on their own without kind of U.S. assistance. But yeah, I, th- I think it's just Jen Psaki kind of made this point, um, the White House press secretary yesterday um, in a press conference that, you know, acknowledging that there are millions of Afghans who want to leave now that the Taliban controls the country and that many of them won't get out. But, you know, that's different from the number that the U.S. wants to evacuate because they aided the war effort. So it seems pretty plain to me what the administration is priority is at this point. Well, and there's I mean, there's there's all kinds of middle grounds, right? I mean, there's like layers of onion, right? There's people who have the SIVs. There's people who could have the SIVs if they could get it processed. Then there's people who helped the United States, right? Like in some broader sense, right? But still wouldn't be eligible. Like there are lots of people who served in the Afghan National Army who served in the police, who may have at times fought alongside American soldiers, who may have participated in the civilian government in different ways. You know, they may have been uh, like running a school for girls somewhere. And none of those people would be eligible, like even if the paperwork was flowing, but you might like feel that something should be done for them. And then there's just people who would like to leave, right? I mean, if you you know, Gallup does these surveys sometimes of like people around the world and, you know, how many people would like to emigrate from the country that they're living in. And it's a lot of people. And, you know, where you draw that line is like a really important question with huge humanitarian implications. And Biden has drawn it very narrowly. And I think European leaders have also been making it clear that, like, they really don't want to see a large flow of asylum seekers. And, like, they're very mad that the United States has created a situation in which a lot of people are going to want to leave Afghanistan uh, because they don't want to let them in. Yeah. And I also think, like, part of this line drawing on Biden's part is somewhat motivated by, like, this being an issue that kind of brings together a lot of, like, red and blue tribe activists. Like, there's been bipartisan support for this program for pretty much as long as it's existed. And given the fact that, like, Congress hasn't really been able to reach any agreement on immigration reforms, it's sort of amazing that they were able to pass legislation last month to speed up processing of SIVs and increase the number of available visas for the program and, and ease some of the eligibility requirements. Like, it passed, I think, 407 to 16 in the House. So, like, I can understand where Biden is coming from politically in drawing the line where he has. And it is somewhat consistent with his other immigration policies. I think he's willing to let in a few, but in some ways, I think some of his immigration policies aren't all that different from Trump's. So it's just sort of interesting where it falls in that broader philosophy. Let's take a break and then talk about some of that. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. So an alternative, I guess, exists to this kind of narrow funnel, which would be, I've heard advocates saying that we should be doing humanitarian parole. We should get people out of Afghanistan and I guess sort of like vet them out of the country. Is that what that means? Yeah. So parole is basically this, um, it allows them to live and work in the U.S. temporarily before they apply for some other kind of visa or humanitarian protections. And the reason why that's been talked about a lot is that because these visas are being held up in Afghanistan and they won't be fully processed on any legitimate timeline, the parole authority would basically allow the U.S. to bring these people to maybe a place like Guam, for example, which is U.S. territory, or just to military bases in the U.S. directly and processing would continue there. And one of the reasons why that's ideal is, at least from a humanitarian standpoint, it it makes more sense to bring Afghans to U.S. soil where there's some guarantee of various legal protections and aid, as opposed to having them stay in third countries where a lot of them are are now being brought, you know, to like Qatar and Germany and elsewhere. It it might be preferable because in some of those countries, those protections might not be as strong. So for instance, in Qatar, homosexuality is illegal. And there's a lot of concerns about what will happen to LGBTQ Afghans. But that's just one example. But also, I just think that, like, given that this is a U.S.-created problem, there should be some accountability in terms of the U.S. government bringing them to U.S. territory. And that was the that was the, the Vietnam resolution in, in the 70s, right? I mean, a very large outflow of people from South Vietnam, largely to Guam in the first instance, and then... I guess, I don't know what, they would like check to see if you were a communist spy and whatever else. But then people would go from from Guam ultimately to the mainland. Yeah. um, So it happened in Vietnam in 1975, but also with the Kurds from northern Iraq um, in 1996. And, you know, Guam's historically been used for that purpose. It made a lot of sense. This was something that was proposed to the Biden administration a few months ago by a litany of like advocacy groups. And, you know, even Guam's governor actually volunteered to have the island host Afghans, but was kind of ghosted by Biden. So like Guam's done this before, they were willing to do it again. And also from a public health perspective, amid the pandemic, it kind of makes a lot of sense to bring people to an island where 80% of the people are vaccinated. And, you know, given that Afghanistan's vaccination rates have been poor, it would also be easy to, to sort of like facilitate that. 
yeah, so I, I think in that respect, you know, Guam made a lot of sense and might have been used in this instance, but for reasons we still don't know, Biden decided against it. I, I think some people have speculated that Biden wanted to bring them to third countries first just because bringing them to a U.S. territory, again, affords these Afghans additional rights and it might be harder to send them elsewhere. Like there might be some obligation at that point to bring them to the mainland U.S. And this, I mean, this seems like, I think to understand this, you have to look at the larger immigration policy sort of picture that is unfolding, right? That, I mean, I think if there were no asylum seekers at the southern border and no controversy about that and no other things, you might have gotten a different answer from the Biden administration here. But they made some changes to Trump's immigration policy at the beginning of the administration. They have gotten a lot of asylum seekers coming and they have been sort of running away from that ever since, right? I mean, trying to say people shouldn't come, continuing to expel people with Title 42, um, various other, you know, I, I don't quite know how to characterize it because like they're in the courts over migrant protection program and like making some kinds of policy changes. But it's obvious that like they don't want to grant asylum to a large quantity of people. And they feel like they've taken on a lot of political water over that. And it seems to me like that influences the thinking on Afghanistan. Yeah, I think certainly. And unfortunately, it's sort of backfired on them to an extent because now you have Republicans going in the opposite direction, you know, criticizing Biden for not doing enough to help Afghan refugees. And seemingly like the polling on this has somewhat reflected the fact that like, you know, Fox News is talking about this in the sense that like even, you know, more than 70 percent of Republicans support resettling these people in the U.S., which I think is just sort of an interesting dynamic. But maybe faced with the reality of, of masses of people coming to the U.S., I do wonder whether that will change. But yeah, I do think that Biden really fears the right wing narrative on this. And, and that was possibly why he was sort of slow walking these evacuations of Afghan SIVs. But I think also it's worth mentioning, like one of the reasonings that the Biden administration has given for this is that the former Afghan president, Ashraf Ghani, did say that he wanted the Biden administration to grant SIV status somewhat selectively and not to carry out a mass evacuation sort of just as a matter of ensuring that it didn't seem like the U.S. didn't have faith in, in the Afghan forces. So I think that's one of the sort of the foreign policy justification that they give given for this. But then there's also sort of this domestic dynamic that is very much part of the Biden administration's issues on, on immigration. Wait, and I mean, it is true. When, when, when Ghani was in Washington in June, he was saying, like, don't do a huge dramatic evacuation because he thought it would he thought it would cause the collapse of his military that then happened anyway. And since it happened anyway, it seems like a really bad call to have made decisions premised around preventing that. But, you know, it, it, it was what they were saying back in June. Perhaps not 100%, you know, on the level. I always wonder, I mean, I wonder about these polls, like how many people they think 
they are talking about helping. You know, I, I recently, um, well, you know, because because we we met for coffee while I was in while I was in Red America, um, you know, and I and I talked to some some normal people about this, and uh, they were very outraged that Biden wasn't getting out, you know, all the people who'd helped us. And I sort of asked them like, how many people did they think that was? And they weren't usually naming like low single digit thousands, which you know is an interesting conception of like what's because it's true right i mean if if there were like four thousand people who had been like super duper helpful to the united states of america and we were just refusing to evacuate them like that would be horrible but we've evacuated a lot of people there's just a lot more people who are not being evacuated because like the the total number of people involved is large right we're talking about tens of thousands of of people and I haven't seen I would be interested to see like public opinion field testing like how many refugees or however you want to characterize them from Afghanistan like would you like to see the United States accept because you know honestly I mean this is going to be an ongoing issue like the evacuation process is going to end I think relatively quickly but people are going to continue fleeing Afghanistan in one form or another and you know how we want to think about you know their treatment and the United States's responsibility is a situation that's going to continue to be relevant for quite some time to come yeah and I think also like the timeline on this is really long. Like, we still don't really know how many people might be seeking refuge in the U.S. from Afghanistan because they may be stranded in a third country. Like, even among the people who haven't been evacuated, people who fled over to Pakistan's border or elsewhere, to Turkey, for example, those people might be able to apply for refugee status through programs that the Biden administration has made available. But, you know, a lot of it depends on even, you know, the capacity of the U.S. to receive them. There are resettlement agencies here that have been decimated under the Trump administration and are trying to rebuild. So that's a potential holdup. But then also just the Biden administration, you may recall a few months ago, got a lot of heat for not increasing the refugee cap to what he promised on the campaign trail, which was to 125,000. It's now around 62,000. We're probably not going to resettle anywhere near that in this fiscal year, which ends in October. But I think there is a big question, you know, he will have to issue a presidential determination, as they call it, in, you know, September, October, uh, for what the refugee cap will be for next year. So I think a lot of people are, are watching that to get some semblance of how many Afghans might be able to be resettled under that. It could be a large proportion of the 125,000, but they're kind of these regional allocations. Right now, the, the cap for people from that part of the world is about 4,000. So um, we could see him rapidly increasing that. And I, I think that would make sense. But how people react to that when that question comes around, I think will be interesting. And so what happened with, with the refugee cap? He promised on the campaign trail to increase it. And then they weren't going to increase it. And then they did increase it, but not as much. But then we didn't resettle. Like we didn't actually resettle more people. Is that, is that right? What happened? Yeah. So it's a lot of this is sort of a vestige of Trump's legacy in some ways. You know, basically, the capacity of refugee agencies in the U.S. is tied to what the cap is in a given year. And Trump had drastically slashed refugee admissions. I think the last time it was like 19,000. But given that the refugee cap was slashed so dramatically under Trump, a lot of these agencies had to like close offices all across the U.S. They had to fire people like it was it, it's been a mess. So 
there was all this consternation at the beginning of the Biden administration about, you know, how many of the refugees the U.S. would actually be able to resettle even if he did increase the cap. And I think ultimately he slightly increased the cap that adds to the resources that these agencies are able to have and, and increases their capacity, especially now in the face of, you know, many tens of thousands of people seeking refuge from Afghanistan. But, you know, regardless of what he did there, the U.S. was probably never going to be able to resettle the tens of thousands of people that, you know, are now seeking refuge. But so, like, I mean, has there been capacity rebuilding, at least, over the past six months, year? I mean, is this something where, where I mean, it just seems like we weren't really, in 2021, able to ramp up that much, regardless of the of the politics. But next year, like, should it be possible, at least, to, to resettle substantially more people? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what refugee agencies are saying. You know, they've been in the process of hiring and, and opening, reopening offices over the last few months since Biden took office. And I think another obstacle in this that I didn't mention is just the pandemic, because a lot of these agencies also rely on international partners, like through the UN um, and their infrastructure abroad to resettle refugees in the U.S. You know, they, they'll go to refugee camps and, and send U.S. officers to go and interview refugees, but they first have to be identified by the U.N., so there's a lot of moving parts to this that hopefully, given sort of the state of the pandemic now, it may no longer be as much of an issue. And yeah, I think right now it's just a question of how many refugees Biden will be able to commit to in his presidential determination in a few months. Right. OK, um, let, let's take a break. In, and I want to I want to talk about some of the, the historical context for this. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Something I, I wonder about this, you know, there's been a lot of coverage of, of everything that's that's going on and a lot of commentary, but at least in my experience, I, I'm like not familiar with a lot of large-scale evacuations of people from war zones and visa-related issues. And you mentioned earlier Kurds from northern Iraq in 1996. And like, what happened there Like, that might be relevant to helping us understand how these situations can be handled? Yeah, so there were about 6,600 Iraqi Kurds who were evacuated, most of them from Macedonia, where they had sort of fled the country. And at that time, they were sort of in an area of Iraq that was protected by the U.S., but they had no paperwork at all. But in the interest of their safety, the U.S. government brought them to the Anderson Air Force Base in Guam, 
in the interim to sort of allow time for processing and physical examinations and immunization. But nearly all of the evacuees ended up on the U.S. mainland within seven months in an operation that kind of involved over a thousand members of the U.S. military and, and civilians. And they were basically paroled into Guam. And I think that's sort of a point of controversy with the Biden administration is, you know, how soon do you want to bring Afghans to the U.S. in their process of being vetted? And before you are able to be granted parole, you do have to undergo some kind of security check. But I think the question is, you know, these people, again, had had no visas, no paperwork, but they were still brought directly to the U.S. and then eventually allowed to go on the U.S. mainland. I think that kind of interim step of bringing them to Guam is a big step that the U.S. government hasn't been willing to take in the case of the Afghans, but it might might have provided a model for how they could have done it without having to go through these negotiations with third countries to host Afghans as refugees, possibly for months on end. And it's a it's doubly a point of contrast. I mean, I think just to sort of help people understand what the difference is, it's not that it's not that that was a triumph of evacuation logistics under fire. They had already left Iraq. They were in Macedonia, which if you if you look on a map, podcasts are not great for maps, uh, but Macedonia is like a couple countries away from Iraq. The point is, is that they were granted a presumption, essentially, that like we would want to take them in, right? Like they didn't have papers, they didn't have the right documents, but they were all given parole and then they were vetted, which is to say, you know, I, any kind of government process, right? Like, I mean, if we've ever interacted with the government in, in any capacity, there's like a mode in which the government is like, yes, we want to help you. And now we're going to try to make sure you have your stuff in order. And there's like the suspicion mode, right? And the immigration system normally operates in a kind of suspicion mode. I will say, though, that I think that is somewhat of a post 9-11 paradigm. Like maybe that is a difference that we're seeing here in terms of comparing to the evacuations in Vietnam and um, with the Kurdish evacuation is like, you know, there's not this looming question of, you know, of security concerns. And there wasn't in those cases in the same way. Right. No, I mean, and and I mean, I think definitely with Vietnamese, I mean, it's interesting because I was reading some about the sort of politics around that. Resettling of all those those Vietnamese refugees was not was not particularly popular with the public, but there was a bipartisan buy-in among elites because it was seen as part of the um, like part of a Cold War project, right? In which people felt confident that these were you know anti-communists, which was what we wanted in the United States. And I mean, if you look at like. Trump was on the campaign trail and he was saying he wasn't going to allow any Muslims into the United States under any circumstances. And that was obviously a controversial position for him to take, but it did not stop him from winning the election, you know, taking like the most hardcore Islamophobic stance possible. And there's just like a lot of suspicion of Muslims coming in to the United States of America, you know, security concerns and other sort of more more hazy kind of issues around it that, you know, has obviously been weighing on this uh, for years as well as in the continued situation. Yeah, absolutely. I do think that is a difference here. It's interesting. I was recently reading that at one point when Trump was considering 
banning Iraqis as part of his travel ban policy, there was sort of outrage on the part of his advisors because many of these SIVs would have been blocked as part of that. So he eventually reversed course. But I think it is a question of like whether that actually would have ended up hurting him in any way politically. And it's just a bit of a depressing situation. Well, and I, I mean, I, I think, you know, like that, I think, is sort of parallel, right, to the Vietnam situations, like stakeholders in the Republican Party were invested in the SIV program, like they wanted it to go forward. And they, I don't know, they yelled at Trump, and they got him to change his mind on Iraq in that sort of modified Muslim ban. But I mean, there's been I mean, we've seen plenty of reporting, right, that Trump's idea, at least, was to withdraw from Afghanistan and seemingly to really minimize the number of Afghan people who would be brought in, you know, because they're not, I mean, there's like lots of different ways this can go together politically. But like, obviously, like one point of view about the Afghan war is that like, this was pointless and bad. And, you know, people didn't want American soldiers fighting it. And they also didn't want Afghan refugees coming to the United States. And I mean, I think that was very much Trump's view. And Biden's view is not exactly the same as that, but it's not totally different either. Yeah. And I think this is also just where his, you know, we see Biden's America first type foreign policy coming through as well. In some ways, like his stance on this, you know, while coded with like more, you know, humanitarian minded language. I'm I'm just not sure like how different his priorities were in the situation than than Trump's. Well, and what I mean they call it I think Jake Sullivan's slogan, right, was foreign policy for the middle class, which is not the same as America first, but again, it's not like that different, right, in its conceptual underpinnings, right? And if you take that idea seriously, like you were asking, what is the level of interest of a typical middle-class American in prolonging the war in Afghanistan. And they say, not really much of an interest. And what is the interest of middle-class Americans in resettling large numbers of Afghan refugees? And like, also not that much interest, right? A clear interest in evacuating American citizens, U.S. public, you know, I mean, what, what they're doing, right? Evacuating people who already have visas, evacuating people who are U.S. citizens, evacuating permanent residents, evacuating citizens of other Western allies. But it's not a view that aspires to the kind of big cosmopolitanism that, you know, George W. Bush started a lot of wars but like under the theory that we were spreading democracy globally, and that's the moment politically that the SIV program comes out of. Yeah. And I don't know, though, I do wonder to what extent the SIV issue is, is somewhat unique. Like, I think it, it is an interesting issue that brings together, like, you know, because it's so deeply embedded with the efforts of the U.S. military, I, I do wonder to what extent, like, it is a bit unique in the sense that it brings together sort of red tribe, blue tribe. I think going back to your point earlier in terms of just like, you know, what is the willingness on the part of the average American to bring in, you know, X number of refugees? I think that like maybe it is the number that's more divisive than the concept in and of itself. But I, I do think that people feel an obligation, recognize that the U.S. has an obligation to help people who aided the U.S. war effort. Yeah, I, I do think that that is a motivating issue, though, perhaps, you know, if we're looking to a next election cycle. 
not as motivating as other issues, certainly, but like in terms of how they view the American withdrawal, I do think that that is a, a major issue. So what are we looking at going forward? As you've said, we have a lot of people um, now sort of in third countries and the evacuation program, at least if things go according to plan, is going to come to an end pretty soon. But all these people who are in, whether they're in Qatar or Germany or wherever else, presumably are going to still, there's going to be choices. They're going to still need help. I mean, what are we going to be looking at this fall? Yeah. So I think a big question for me is just how long these people are going to end up staying in those third countries. Basically, the U.S. has agreed not to house Afghans at its German airbase for longer than 10 days, but we don't really have a lot of clarity in terms of the other countries where people are being relocated. So I think there there is a question of whether Afghans will end up waiting in these third countries for prolonged periods and, you know, how long it might take to, to bring them to the U.S., the Biden administration actually has started allowing some SIV applicants who are sort of further along in the application process to come to the U.S., but it's not clear whether that's sort of happening on a wide scale at this point. And then the other kind of concern here is, you know, they're being currently flown to one of three army bases in the U.S., uh, Fort Bliss in Texas, Fort McCoy in Wisconsin, and Fort Lee in Virginia. And those bases are at this point sort of preparing to receive as many as 22,000 Afghans altogether. But some immigrant advocates have kind of been raising concerns as to whether they could stay on those bases for a long-term basis, possibly more than a year uh, before being transferred to their final destination. And that's kind of concerning, especially given that, like, Fort Bliss, you may have also heard about it in the context of, you know, the housing of migrant children. It's currently the subject of an ongoing government watchdog investigation over allegations of abuse and poor conditions. So... I think, you know, just from a human rights perspective, that's something that's going to be closely watched in the U.S. Another thing is just the capacity of these refugee resettlement agencies to get people to their final destination. You know, like as we were saying, they were decimated under the Trump administration um, and they offer all kinds of services to these SIVs as well as other refugees who may be coming from Afghanistan. You know, just basic necessities, temporary housing, cash assistance, job training, et cetera. So how quickly we might be able to get people out of third countries and, and out of these military bases really actually does depend on the capacity of U.S. refugee agencies. So to whatever extent the Biden administration can wrap that up in the next few months, I think it's going to offer us a lot of clarity. And so when you talk about third countries, I mean, you, so you, you noted the, the U.S. bases in Germany, and that's a kind of that seems like a, like a slightly unique circumstance in which we've sort of promised the German government that people will not be staying there uh, for for very long. But what what are the other countries that are currently housing substantial numbers of Afghans? Yeah, so it's Qatar, Italy, Spain, Kuwait, United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain. And then I think there's also a question of whether there might be new agreements with other countries or, you know, also just Afghanistan's neighboring countries like Pakistan and stuff like that will just end up maybe not willingly so, but hosting a lot of refugees who have just been trying to cross the borders, even though the borders are technically closed. So those are sort of the places where I think we might see the most international aid going to at this point. But, you know, I, I think for refugees in particular, there's not really an infrastructure set up to receive them that like the U.S. has been deeply involved with. So Biden just announced like there was an additional 500 million that's been freed up for this purpose and, and others. But that infrastructure like didn't exist before 
August 14th. And to whatever extent they're setting that up now, it is a very kind of hurried operation. So I think a question for Afghans who are reaching these third countries is like, you know, how do I support my family? Like, how do I get a job if I don't speak the language? I think those are just sort of basic survival things that are going to have to be hammered out very imminently. And this is, you know, something we should always keep in mind is that, you know, there's always a lot of media conversation around refugees in in the U.S. and in, in Europe and, and things like that. But whenever there's a conflict zone, I mean, the, the largest number of refugees inevitably just show up in the neighboring countries, you know, whether that's that's Pakistan or whether it's in, in some of this territory that's only been newly overrun by the Taliban, I mean, you could, it, it depends what happens, but you could see people, you know, fleeing to Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, other places there. And, you know, those governments, um, well, A, they're like not great in general, but also don't have a lot of resources. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of questions about how, how that could go and what could be involved. And also questions about like the Taliban's own conduct, right? I mean, ideally, they won't do anything too horrible in a quest to gain international recognition and be seen as a legitimate, if not, you know, admirable kind of governing entity. But we don't really know, right? I mean, it's it's not unusual for wars to produce large numbers of people spilling over into the borders of, of the immediate neighbors. Yeah. And I, I think at this point, it seems like there is some, at least in the outer provinces of Afghanistan, like some control over travel through the borders. Like, so I don't know to what extent those people will be allowed to flee. Or even if they, you know, I, I think another question is here, the U.S. isn't helping those people necessarily evacuate at this point. So they would have to do it on their own accord with their own money. So just the extent to which they're even able to get to a third country, I think it, right now is still quite an open question. And is is there stuff, I mean, you know, if you're listening to this, if people are concerned, I mean, are there like good sort of go-to places to go that, that a person can try to help, you know, Afghans or, or other refugees in, in need of some kind of assistance as the United States maybe does the right thing in some cases? Yeah, I mean, I think like if you're a listener going to any one of the sort of major U.S. refugee resettlement agencies, I know that they take private donations and stuff like that. But um, I think you can also volunteer to work with them and help some of these refugees get set up in their final destination, um, just, you know, helping them get comfortable and situated in their community. But, you know, I think another interesting thing to mention here, which I'm going to be watching, is whether the Biden administration could implement a program allowing for private sponsorship of Afghan refugees. This has been something that's been talked about for years at this point. But Biden issued an executive order in February that was kind of ordering the relevant agencies to to get started on that. But basically, that would mean that private individuals and community groups, not just these big refugee resettlement agencies that receive government funding, could support additional Afghan refugees, perhaps even exceeding the, you know, 125,000 refugee cap that Biden's supposed to be setting later this year. So I think that's going to be something to watch. And we could potentially see a lot of like community groups and, and, and even just individuals deciding that they want to bring over Afghan refugees on their own accord. All right. Okay. Well, I, I mean, that's good. I mean, I would really urge everybody to look into that and see see what you can do. I will let you go now, Nicole, but thank you so much for joining and helping out. Thanks as always to our sponsors. Thanks to our producer, Neth Smith-Savadov, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday.